and welcome to the Nosy Fox Podcast with me, Natasha Murta. Each episode will be an interview with someone that I find interesting and has a story to tell that I believe is worth sharing. Some of the people I'll be talking to are people that I know, but some are strangers that for one reason or another, I wanted to get to know. This is a podcast about people and storytelling, two of my favorite things. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. In this week's episode of The Nosy Fox, I talk to Claire Sheridan, one of the pioneers of women's rock climbing in Ireland and author of her new memoir, Uncoiling the Ropes. Claire was a trailblazing figure in the 70s when the world of Irish climbing was almost uniquely male-dominated. Despite growing up in an era where women were constantly being told what their limitations were, Claire forged ahead with extreme leads and bold first ascents. In this episode, Claire tells a story about how she fell in love with rock climbing and the different challenges she faced as a woman who was breaking the mould of a world run by men. Claire starts off our conversation by talking about her childhood during the 50s and what it was like growing up in Bantry, West Cork. I'm talking about being a child in the 1950s, 1960s, where children had a great deal of freedom. And along with my sister, we roamed the countryside at will after school most days. And I think at that time, got a feel for landscape. There would have been old people we knew who still believed in the in fairy forts and would have had stories to explain lone thorn, torn trees and oddly shaped rocks. And I think we soaked all that in and before we ever noticed the mountains of West Cork, we, I think, had really connected with the landscape. So it was that kind of an outdoors childhood. So your love for climbing really kicked off when you finished boarding school and joined the UCD Mountaineering Club with your sister back in 1971. And not only were you two of the first females to join, but you ended up making a fairly significant impact on the club itself. How old were you when you joined and what was it that the club offered? Um, 18, uh, 17, 18. And it was uh, it was a very active club and I joined along with my sister Barbara and they uh, organised hill walks in Wicklow every Sunday and then when the weather picked up in the spring they'd start rock climbing and it was a case of the slightly older, more experienced club members introducing the newcomers to climbing and that's that was where Dawkey Quarry came into it a terrific venue for Dublin-based climbers. So we'd go out there on weekday evenings and at the weekend and build up our expertise on steep rock. So this is a club that allowed you to progress in climbing and teach you the logistics of climbing. Um, but also, I suppose it, it, it formed a little community um, of like-minded people for you. But also these arranged trips uh, sound interesting. I assume you would have needed a lot of gear and equipment for them though you need gear you do and the most important is the rock shoes uh, now before just before I started climbing people used uh, generally well they yeah for ages they climbed in heavy boots but then people started using uh, runners the equivalent of little sand shoes and by the time I started there were specific 
specifically designed rock climbing shoes and and they were great they were particularly good for uh, for myself and the other girls who were starting to climb because we didn't have the strength that the lads had and we very much depended on our footwork and we tended to be neater and have better balance than some of the guys so that that was fine with the shoes but then once things really steepened up we struggled whereas the guys didn't and nobody trained in those days so being a girl with somewhat limited upper body strength there was a huge gap in capability between the the girls and the boys I say girls and boys we were still teenagers the young people I fear the judgment of capability between males and females in outdoor activities and sports will always be there but I'd like to think it's improved over the years It's really frustrating, though, as a woman who loves the outdoors and is very capable in the outdoors, to have people think, I'm not as capable as a male. I know that I'd survive far longer in the woods than my older brother would, but you were once told that girls don't climb. But it wasn't a male that said that to you. It was a a female. That's right. That's right. Uh, she was perhaps two years older, maybe a, a third year or a postgrad student, and uh, she was part of the group that we went out with eagerly every Sunday and then hill walking. And when we heard that arrangements were being made to start rock climbing, now this is way back, fifty years ago in the spring of 1971, uh, we, when I say we, it was my sister Barbara and our friend Sheila. We said, well. Yeah, we're going to go along. We'd like to try that. And she sort of took Sheila aside and said, girls don't do that. Girls don't rock climb. So now we ignored that. But the idea was, and it was still very prevalent at the time, that walking, hill walking, hiking, yes, that was that was appropriate for females. But the idea of pulling yourself up steep rock using your own m- muscles, that was really unacceptable in many ways to a lot of people but we paid no attention and uh, nobody else said that to us in the club and why do you think these people believed it was unacceptable is it because they thought women's bodies were too frail and fragile and that we would get hurt more easily or was it because people believed women couldn't achieve what men could in climbing I think both. I think both of those, and I think, yeah. Well, at the time, uh, no woman had yet got to the summit of Everest, and women were not yet allowed to officially participate in marathons. It was considered that the female body was not capable of that kind of uh, harsh physical effort. And when we started climbing, and I particularly started doing a lot of it, um, an aunt of mine took me aside and said. You know, you you're, you'll have babies sometime. You could damage your reproductive system by all this climbing. Now, I was probably 19 at that stage, and I certainly wasn't thinking about babies, and I, I didn't pay any attention. But we didn't have any role models, and as well as the the general belief that females were the female body was too weak for this sort of thing, there was also a class element, and we had been exposed to a lot of that in boarding school, my sister and I, because the boarding school we attended, the the main aim of the nuns was 
to make us into perfect young ladies. Uh, and uh, there was a Victorian idea, a re- very repressive idea, that um, it was very unsuitable that a, a young lady would develop in any way physically, uh, deliberately. And the, the saying, horses sweat and men perspire and ladies only glow, that was really accepted. And if you had muscles, then you must be almost a servant. That was the only way that women would have muscles if they were working on a farm or, or working as, as a cleaner or in some, what would have been considered manual labour, a low-level um, occupation at that time. So it was... I think Ireland was particularly behind the times because, at least in Britain there was a strong tradition of adventure, no, only for men, not really, but the idea that um, that sport was was a wholesome thing to pursue, that, that wasn't the case in Ireland. I think actually, now I'm simplifying, but I think it was kind of a Protestant-Catholic difference of opinion. Uh, and... And that was borne out um, during our second year in the Mountaineering Club. My sister Barbara was looking after the... uh, It was Freshers' Week in UCD, and she was looking after the club stand, you know, the sort where you set out your wares and you have posters and uh, ropes and so on, and you try and persuade the passing students to hand over their whatever it was, a few pounds in those days, to join the club. And a priest came by... And he started to give out to her and saying she shouldn't be involved in activity like mountaineering. How dare she put her God-given body at risk? You know, that was the attitude. And very strongly, how dare you give your... How dare you put your God-given female body at risk? You know, your, your, your job is to be a wife and a mother. You have no business taking risks and having fun on your own account. So it was, it was, uh, the perspectives were very limited at the time, but we had a lot in our favour. There were three of us, my sister and our friend, and we had more or less the blessing of our parents because my father had brought us out hill walking regularly and he loved the outdoors. So we didn't pay attention to all these limitations that society really uh, attempted to put on us. Did these societal limitations have any kind of impact on you? Did, you know, people constantly saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, you're a woman, you know, blah, blah, blah. Did that make you work harder or did it go over your head? I don't know that we were really conscious of that. We were sort of in a social bubble in the club. There were There were actually five of us young women who all started climbing at the same time and a group of guys who were all we were all second years we were all the same age we were all from roughly the same backgrounds we were great friends with each other we we had this supportive social bubble and apart from our perhaps limited strength nobody said oh the guys are going to do this and the girls are going to do that we were all a group so we were to a large extent, we were able to ignore the the presumptions of perhaps 
the more conservative aspects of Irish society at the time. We just had great fun and the friendships we made when we joined the Mountaineering Club, and the same was true for about a dozen of us, um, we carried them right through to post-grad and we still have some of those friendships. So it was, it was because we'd been, especially my sister and I in convent boarding school, in a way we had the sort of bonding at 18 and 19 that a lot of youngsters have at 13 and 14. But we hadn't had the chance to mix with young people at that age. And when was it that you kind of realised that you weren't just interested in having fun with climbing and that it was actually going to be something fairly serious in your life? Oh, very soon after we started because uh, Doki Quarry was where everybody came and there were well-known mountaineers like Joss Lynham who we'd, we'd see there. And then, I think it was 1972, he was leading an expedition to Greenland and... You know, this was amazing. This was a goal. We we weren't presumptuous enough to say we're going on trips like that, but it was in the back of our minds. So the sort of structure that was in place for all climbers at the time was, okay, you were a hill walker. Of course you were a hill walker. But you were going to learn to climb. You were going to learn the skills of looking after yourself on very steep rock and then you would go to Scotland and there would be steep ice and snow and then automatically you moved on to the Alps when you had those skills and then if you were lucky enough uh, and had the push and uh, had the right companions you'd go on an expedition to climb unclimbed peaks in the Himalayas so that, that was seen as the progression whereas nowadays rock climbing is seen as an end in itself so because of Doki Quarry and the Tiglin Adventure Centre, which opened around that time as well, where uh, I went on courses and worked then as an instructor, uh, I, I was in constant contact with the best climbers in Ireland who were going to the Alps and telling tales in pubs. An awful lot of it was based in pubs, telling tales about what they had done and what they were going to do the next season. So even... In the, our very first season, rock climbing, a season was always sort of March to October because there were no indoor climbing walls or indoor training. Uh, right from the beginning, I would have been in touch with the whole scene and, and the people at the top of the hierarchy and looked up to them. They were all male, of course. When you started stepping outside of your mountaineering club back in the UCD days and became exposed to larger groups of climbers, did you stick out as a woman that was determined and a woman that was competition to men? Or was it a supportive and safe place? It was actually a safe place. And I suppose I I did stick out a bit. I mean, I remember one Thursday night. Thursday night was in the summer was when everybody would come to Doki Quarry. Uh, and I remember leading a particular climb one Thursday night and getting a round of applause from two or three male climbers who happened to be passing at the bottom. And I remember thinking, oh, I am, you know, perhaps I am doing something notable for a woman. No, it, it wasn't a particularly hard, hard climb. but it, I'd say that felt very good. <laughs> well, it did, it did. And... 
yeah, it, it, that sort of thing was motivating. And, and then on another occasion, someone said to my sister, oh, I see UCD has a climber at last. You know, the, that I was leading climbs at the middle grades of difficulty, whereas while there were other uh, young women climbing, in general, they were climbing my sister and my friend and as I had been up to a certain point the easiest climbs leading the easiest climbs or seconding there's a huge huge difference between leading a climb and seconding a climb if you lead the climb you take the risks because you'll fall if it's too hard for you if you can't manage the moves whereas seconding you've got the rope from your climbing harness up when you're leading there's no rope above you it's dangling from your harness and you clip it into uh, bits of protective equipment that you slot into cracks along the way but it's below you all the time when you're leading so you'll always take a bit you know a bit of a fall whereas when you're seconding you've got the security of the rope which is being taken out at the top by your leader who is anchored to the cliff face so all the risk is taken out of it so the big jump that I made was I was leading climbs regularly harder and harder climbs and yes that was noticed. So when you're leading a climb you have nobody to rely on but yourself. Yes yeah the the skills and experience and your judgment. Now you're also dependent on your belay or the, the second person who's down on the ground who is feeding the rope out to you. So the rope is going up uh, and as you go, you clip it to these things you put in slot into cracks. And then if you fall, the rope is going up through that uh, carabiner and you're dangling below it. But of course, that only works if the person standing on the ground is managing the rope correctly. So, you know, it wouldn't be right to say you're just totally dependent on yourself. You're dependent primarily on your own skills and judgment. But you're also, you've got complete trust in your second who is handling the rope for you. But the rope is not above you. Did you ever have a serious accident? Um, I, I've had, I, I had a fall in Doki. I didn't fall very far, but I bashed myself off a pointy rock. And that was, that was very painful. And it was quite early on in my climbing career. And when something like that happens it's well a bit like getting back on the horse you uh you, no, I mean I didn't have to force myself but you do kind of have to work through it psychologically I mean what happens much more often is if you're pushing yourself on something hard that you think you're going to fall and you have to manage yourself manage your fear and kind of climb through the difficult section and then of course you, you feel uh, euphoric you feel excited you feel powerful and that strengthens you psychologically for managing the next stressful situation you come to but if you actually fall off and hurt yourself it can it can set you back a bit yeah um I, i i've had some mishaps and i've had some close shaves but overall i've been i've been very lucky there was a rather famous female climber who died Alison Hargreaves and she was also a mother and she was heavily criticised for being irresponsible and putting herself in danger whilst being a mother. 
Well, I, I knew her, and I, I, Alison Hargreaves, and I, I identified with her to an extent. I, I met her on a women's climbing meet in Wales years ago. Now, she was younger than me, maybe 10 years younger than me. Yes, I would have been, I think, I think it was before I had any of, of my children, so I would have been about 31, and she was 21. And I met her at this gathering of female climbers in Wales. And um, at the time, I thought she was very ambitious and she 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 to an extent seemed to be intent on drawing attention to herself and um i i i didn't click with her but now i i should explain she was she was she was a young ambitious climber who was very keen to make a name for herself in climbing and you know sometimes when you meet someone like that you go Ooh, a bit of hype there, and uh, but she 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 went from rock climbing to alpinism, which I did, of course, myself, and Himalayan climbing, and she her her thing in Himalayan climbing and in alpinism was that she would do some hard ascents solo, completely on her own, and she did that over a number of years. And I really came to admire her because um, no, almost nobody was doing that. You know, she really was um, undertaking big challenges and succeeding and getting getting written up in the climbing magazines. Uh, and um, and then she she climbed Everest without oxygen and without um, backup Sherpas, which. Nobody, almost nobody does now. It's in, in fact, you can hardly do it now. The mountain is so crowded. You can't do it now. But she did it. And she got a hero's welcome when she came back to Britain. And, um, oh, and, and I invited her over to Ireland to give a slideshow because I was organising um, visiting lecturers for Mountaineering Ireland at the time. And she stayed with us in Bray and... Uh, I was I was fascinated by her training, her ambition, her skill, her achievements, and she was. I I, I didn't have that um, vibe from her. She had matured, and she knew what she was at, and I had great admiration for her. And then, very soon after the Everest ascent, she went on to K two, and she was blown off it to her death. So, and then, as you say, she was criticised very, very harshly because she was a mother. And I, I thought, I thought that was very unfair. Now you don't expect the general media to be uh, to discriminate, to be aware, I suppose, of the subtleties of climbers' motivations. But I thought it was a real throwback to. Um, uh, a male-dominated society that, yes, the men could take the risk and go away, and if they died, okay, a man has died, but nobody says a father has died. But because she was a mother of two young children, um, she she was hugely criticised. And Claire, do you think the narrative has changed now? Do you think that female hillwalkers and female climbers and hikers are 
well, we're certainly not yet seen at the same level as men, I don't think. But do you think we have progressed a little and are now being identified and respected more in this field and um, a female like yourself or or, or me are, are seen as being very capable as going into the outdoors and going on a big long hike on their own and being just as careful and smart as a male. Well, I think the gap has really ch- closed and if if the Olympics, uh, th- these Olympics that, that, that are due will have climbing for the first time and there will, now the men and women won't compete against each other, but there is not much difference in the level of difficulty that will be climbed by the women on, in their competitions compared to the men. Now, what has made all the difference has been the indoor climbing walls and training and sports psychology and the 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 emphasis, as in all sports, on developing technical expertise. What hasn't changed is trad climbing, which is mainly what I do, which is uh, climbing where there are no bolts set in the rock where, now I should explain, the in the competition climbs, now they're on artificial walls, but they are mimicked outdoors by developments on cliffs where bolts have been, where holes have been drilled in the rock at intervals and bolts screwed in and glued and the climber can clip their rope to them as they go. So you can almost staple your rope to the cliff as you, as you go. So the cliff has been modified and it's like... It's it's like in some ways, almost like um, a, a sports arena, like a testing ground. You come into this area where there's an accessible cliff, and there's line after line after line of bolts shining in in the sun. And you look at the guidebook, you decide what level of difficulty you're going to climb, and you start to climb one of them. I, we do some of that, and we enjoy it in France and Spain, but. Trad climbing, traditional climbing, which is what I started with, is you come along to the cliff, there's nothing man-made on it, there's nothing modified about it. You just, okay, you might read the guidebook and say, right, that crack system is such a grade of difficulty, and you decide to climb that. Uh, But trad climbing, that style of climbing, that's the basis of all real mountaineering, because the big mountains won't have the sequences of bolts on them. Uh, in the Alps and in the Himalayas. So the two styles of climbing have diverged. And to get back to your question, the achievements of women in sport climbing, indoor wall climbing, have come closer and closer with every year that has passed since that became popular about 25 years ago. But in trad climbing, there are huge gaps. It's still very much the men who are to the fore, very, very much. Do you think that's something that should change? And if so, how do you think it could be done? Yes, it's something I've thought about and it's something that I know Mountaineering Ireland are, are, are keen to, they're keen to support women, but it's the risk, risk aspect. It's not something you can teach. Trad climbing, you as a leader, as an independent climber, but with a companion, uh, it takes... It's very psychologically demanding. It takes a very wide range of skills, very different to sport climbing. So all the 
really what what will just make the difference is that people would be aware of other people doing it and would would have role models and would um I, I suppose would know where to go to pick up the expertise when i started there was a sort of um apprentice system you could you could get in with a, an older usually a male a climber meet up with that person in Dalkey and they would show you the ropes literally and figuratively they would show you how to place the gear they would tell you all the background information about the type of climbing moves and demonstrate and so on now there are so many people keen to climb that um, uh, people do courses that's the most efficient way with instructors starting indoors usually and then going outdoors so a good instructor could be inspirational for someone I think that would make the difference but um, I think only one or two percent of female climbers are independent trad climbers so so even though the number of climbers is growing and growing and growing and the climbing walls their membership is expanding and especially people having seen two really good films that came out about two years ago um, the Dawn Wall one and also um, the Alex Honnold soloing I mean they were fabulous films and and there was no fakery in them they were climbers loved them as well but they have brought climbing to an even wider audience but still only as I say a a tiny percentage will become independent trad climbers and mountaineers as opposed to sport climbers on the modified routes. I believe you have said in the past that you will never climb Everest. Is that still how you feel? And if so, why? Yes, well, you can't climb Everest now unless you like crowds. And I don't choose to ever climb where there are crowds. Um, the, The... the way that um, Everest climbing Everest is marketed nowadays is that uh, it is to entice non-mountaineers who have. Um, when I say non-mountaineers, I mean people who don't have the the skills and the experience to climb independently. Uh, there is no room for them on the main routes on the mountain anymore. Uh, what what everything is is channeled towards the person who can pay a lot of money is very fit is very determined and will be happy to be assisted along the way with uh, mountain guides and sherpas and the backup crews who do the cooking and set up the tents in advance and all that it's high altitude tourism rather than mountaineering as i would see it so it it's i mean i i if i i could i could have been on the first irish um uh, expedition that climbed everest but i had three children at the time so there was no way i was going to uh, to go away on a big trip like that um but that kind of mountaineering that went on at that time, that was the first Irish ascent was in 1993. By the end of the 90s, climbing in the Himalayas on the big peaks, the honeypot peaks, um, ha- had already begun to change because of the amount of fixed ropes that were in place and that people were not progressing independently. They were progressing 
clipped to a rope and with backup and assistance. So that's not... And it's a real shame because that kind of activity is damaging the landscape at a faster rate. And I see, you know, I love hiking and I love hill walking and I love challenging myself in that regard. But I recently hiked the Torres Alpine in Patagonia in Chile with my friend Nuria and after we completed that we start we started thinking about what we would do next and I came across you know recent pictures of Everest and I just thought to myself my god what have we done to that mountain the 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 lines of traffic going up it the rubbish the it just it 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 looked so sad to me and to be honest doing Everest never really was on my bucket list but it certainly wouldn't be a thing I would want to do now anyway um it's kind of like it's become this mountaineering rat race of get up get the photo and get down which is not what hiking should be about and it's certainly not what hiking is for me I know when I go hiking it's because I truly enjoy it and it's it's for my love of the outdoors and nature and the way that I feel when I do hikes and treks and Caminos or camping trips. So, uh, Claire, my question for you is what is it about climbing that you love so much and what do you feel when you are climbing? Rock climbing and steep ice climbing, they, they would be similar and, of course, you'd need both skills to a high level to climb good climbs in the Alps um, oh it's it's demanding physically demanding requires a lot of skill a lot of psychological commitment and a complete focus and in a way it's a bit like a mindfulness meditation you are so focused on what you're doing that um you sort of come to the top and it's almost like waking up from a dream. Oh, the countryside is still there <laughs> uh, because you have been so much within a particular zone that um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's just like nothing else. Now, I know it's, I've read similar descriptions of people talking about surfing or other really demanding um, adventure activities. So it's, it's of course, not unique to climbing but it's unique to me because climbing is my thing so it's um, um, exhilarating and it's fun yeah and 2014 was a big year for you you were the first woman to be awarded the Limnum medal by Mountaineering Ireland uh, that's right and that was in memory of uh, the mountaineer Joss Lynham that I, I mentioned earlier who, who was um, one of the established mountaineers when, when, when I was a uh, a youngster in Dorky. Yes, that was um, that was an honour. I was delighted to be honoured in that way, and uh, it, it was it was a big occasion for me. And in fact, it was when I was preparing the talk I gave on that occasion that I started rereading my uh, diaries from the time I was in the UCD club and seeing the progression and the. Um, the, the the attitudes and what people said, what I thought, what I, I said, all these little snippets written down. And seeing, I suppose, my story as a climber through the diaries and putting them into some kind of shape for that lecture, 
that was the basis of writing my memoir then, which was published last summer. And it was, um, yeah, I suppose it was a time of, of reflection and it was the, the, the invitation to do the Lynham Lecture and to, be, uh, and to receive that uh, award that, that got me thinking on those lines, got me thinking back. So you got yourself a memoir out of your love affair with climbing, but you also got yourself a husband out of your relationship with climbing. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true because it was on my first trip to the Alps when I was uh, 21 or so that, um, that, that I met Calvin because we had a friend, a mutual friend, with whom I was climbing and Calvin had come out to meet. And, um, and so, yes, and we climbed together in the Alps. I only had a couple of weeks and uh, I got to know Calvin and then he suggested that when, at the end of the summer, I'd be at home and he was coming back, I was in Dublin, he was coming back to Belfast, that, um, yeah, we had really hit it off, that, that we'd meet up and uh, that... He'd bring me to climb at Fairhead, which was this very is this very formidable cliff on the North Antrim coast, where he had climbed uh, a fair bit, and uh, I wouldn't have gone near it if he hadn't been there to show it to me because um, I would have thought it was beyond my reach in every way. But we've both climbed there a huge amount since then. That was 1974, and um, we've pioneered a lot of new routes there. Now, doing a new route is uh, is something very special for rock climbers. It's climbing um, a section of rock that has never been climbed by anyone and uh, you, you decide where you're going to climb, maybe a crack system, some ledges, um, a chimney, which is, which is kind of a, uh, as you would expect, kind of a scoop in the rock where you have rock on three sides of you. Uh, all different features. You decide what route you're going to take up the cliff face. And when you climb it, if you climb it, if you succeed in getting to the top, then you write a description of it, you give it a name, you grade it in terms of difficulty. There is a, a, a laid out uh, level of difficulty uh, going from the very easiest climbs to the very hardest. And so you decide what level of difficulty. And then that description goes in the guidebook. So you're contributing to the history of Irish climbing, really. So that has been a big part of our climbing partnership that we've done a lot of new routes. And we still do. Uh, we're going up to Fairhead next week now, to, hoping to... Um, find some other areas that, that develop some other parts of the cliff that haven't been developed yet. It's five kilometres long and it's north facing and it's a hundred metres high and there are still sections that are a bit hard to get at that have never been climbed. So that has been that's been a great motivator for us for decades to to develop that cliff, to do new climbs on that cliff. How exciting to climb something that's never been climbed before. It is, really. It, it, it is. And in a way, it feels like it's yours forever. Because there's only ever one first ascent. So. That is so lovely. What would you say is your favourite rock that you've ever climbed? Um, I, I, suppose I, I suppose I'd have to say Fairhead because we, we, have, we have identified with that cliff. We have spent so many days, so many weekends 
climbing there. But there's a lovely south-facing sunny cliff in Glendalough, way at the back of the valley as well. And we've we climb we've climbed a huge amount in the Mont Blanc area, um, based in Chamonix, um, classic alpine routes. Um, we we've climbed since I retired from teaching. We we've gone away on a lot of trips rock climbing in America and in Spain and in Morocco and they've all been great that's the kind of thing that Irish climbers love to do in the winter if you have the time because the Irish winter can be long and wet and while while in the Alps and that you you may be wearing boots with crampons and climbing in ice and snow if you're wearing rock shoes and it rains heavily then you'll probably abseil off, leave some gear behind and abseil off because it's very hard to rock climb, pure rock climbing in the rain. So you're very limited for outdoor climbing in Ireland in the winter and we've been lucky that we've been able to travel to sunny places to climb. So it's hard to it's hard to pick any one area. It's all kind of a, a tapestry that comes together. In a typical year, uh, we would... We would ice climb in France on frozen waterfalls and uh, rock climb when it gets a bit warmer, rock climb in Spain, maybe in Morocco. If Maybe go to the States to climb on desert rock in October, early November and in between times uh, climb in Ireland in, in the summer as well. So it's... Um, it's been all go since we retired. <laughs> and for anybody that might be listening to this podcast and wants to get into climbing, where would you say is a great place to start? I would say to go to Awesome Walls in Finglas. And uh, it's a great place, very friendly staff, a terrific um, a range of climbing possibilities, and including bouldering where you don't need a companion you're on a short wall and you just jump back down onto crash mats. So that's that's always an option for somebody who doesn't have a partner. But to go along and chat to the staff there or at any of the other um, climbing walls in Dublin, there's there's one in Talla, there's one in Sandyford, there's one in Inchicore, and they all have great staff and they are constantly introducing people to rock climbing. And it's great to go along with two or three friends because... Almost immediately, as soon as you start, it's fun. You're kind of in a soft competition with each other, but really you're just supporting each other and having a great laugh. And I see people all the time whenever we go to Awesome Walls. Every time we're there, there are new small groups of young people coming in and looking around and looking a bit, you can see, a bit apprehensively wondering what it's going to be like and within 10 minutes they're just having a ball so that's what I would say get uh, get to one of those walls and get an introduction and then some people don't aspire to climbing outside but there's a lot of instructors including the people who work at the walls who run outdoor climbing courses as well for one person, for three people, for six people, whatever. So all the options are there. I read that in 2014, the Irish Times said that you were to Irish mountaineering what Sonia O'Sullivan is to athletics and what Katie Taylor is to boxing. 
That's pretty cool if you ask me. Is it safe to say that climbing has changed your life? That's true. That's true. Rock climbing and mountaineering, yes. Do you think it's shaped you into the woman that you are today? I do, yes. Um, I, I do. I mean, I think, I think I was always adventurous and I was always a tomboy, but if I hadn't found something that I loved so much from the beginning, um, perhaps I wouldn't have pursued that. And I wouldn't have pursued it so intensely for all the years when I was working full-time, when I had three young children, when I was often exhausted after a day's work at school, uh, being a primary teacher. Um, teaching is never easy. It, it, it really is very demanding. And um, to to turn around on a Friday evening and pack up the climbing gear and pack up the camping gear and sort out the clothes and the books and the toys and the travel cot for the baby and the toddler and the four-year-old and all of us, Calvin and myself and the children, get into the car and drive to someplace on the west coast or up to Fairhead and set up the tents, tent at midnight and organise ourselves and meet other people to climb with. That was all a huge effort, but we wouldn't have had it otherwise because climbing was what we did. It was what brought so much joy to our lives. So, And also it was such a change from Monday to Friday that I'd be back in school on the Monday morning with cuts on my hands from jamming up rough cracks and physically tired, but absolutely full of energy, which is what an activity like that does. And Claire, I'm sure you talk about all of this in a lot more detail in your new memoir, Uncoiling the Ropes, which is on sale in every good bookshop, correct? Indeed, Uncoiling the Ropes. Um, actually, it, it is best found um, in from Mountaineering Ireland or in the Great Outdoors um, uh, or, or even on Amazon and in some independent bookshops. Uh, yes, Claire Sheridan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being on the Nosy Fox podcast. And thank you for being an inspiration for women like me. But more importantly, thank you for being an inspiration for little girls that are only just discovering the world and that might need to be reminded that they can do anything once they put their mind to it. Mm-hmm.